We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. The Volume. Lakers Tonight is presented by FanDuel Sportsbook. There's no better place to make every moment more than with FanDuel. You get great odds in markets for the NBA, NHL, college, and so much more. It's America's number one sportsbook. It's super easy to use. Plus, you can combine multiple bets from the same game into a same-game parlay. If you are new, just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app to get started now. Sign up with promo code JasonT so they know I sent you. 21 plus and present in Arizona, Colorado, Connecticut, Indiana, Louisiana, permitted parishes only, Michigan, New Jersey, New York, Tennessee, Virginia, or West Virginia. First online real money wager only. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site credit that expires in 14 days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut. 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Indiana, New Jersey, and Virginia. 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope NY to 467-369 in New York. In Tennessee Redline, dial 1-800-889-9789 in Tennessee. Visit www.1800gambler.net in West Virginia. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight, presented by FanDuel here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. I hope all of you are having a great week. A couple of interesting Game 2s today, predictable Game 2s. These you know, these two series are definitively less interesting than the other two series, as the Boston Bucks series and that Warriors-Grizzly series, but there's still a lot going on. It's just hard because with 
Joel Embiid being out, there's just not a whole lot that you can learn from the games taking place in Miami right now. I think hopefully if he comes back in game three, we'll get a little bit more out of that series. And then, you know, Dallas, I love Dallas. I love Luka. He's one of my favorite players to watch, but they're playing the team that might be the best team in the NBA, or at least in that conversation with the likes of Boston. And so as a result, as much as I love rooting for that team and I am so interested to see what they can accomplish over the course of the next five to 10 years, they're just up against it right now against a really, really good team. Today's going to be a little bit different than some of our recent shows. We're going to break down these two games a little bit. We'll spend 15, 20 minutes on it. But we're going to spend the latter half of the show kind of zooming out a little bit and talking a little bit more about some of the macro topics around the NBA. I think this is a good time, especially with no games tomorrow. We'll have a good opportunity here to just kind of take stock of how this playoff, uh, this, this set of playoffs has gone so far and what we've learned about the players involved and the teams involved and so on and so forth. Before we get started, make sure you like this video and subscribe to the YouTube channel. Um, check out our newsletter. There's a link in the description to this video. It's a great way to stay up to speed on all of our content. And as always, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. I do video breakdowns every morning. That's a great place to see some film that backs up the things that I say on the show. But let's start with the Mavs and the Sun. So CP3 <laughs> went ahead and performed open Maverick surgery on, on Luka and Dallas there in that fourth quarter, which is, you know, not not exactly the most shocking thing in the world. Uh, uh, Ryan, our lead producer, the guy who's the real MVP of the show, said, uh, it, I thought it was genius. He goes, he goes, how unfair is it that Phoenix is so good that Chris Paul gets to basically be Mariano Rivera for this team? And it's, it, it's the reality because say what you want about CP3's longevity, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later on in the show. Like, the advantage of being able to basically use him in short bursts, basically taking superstar duties and splitting them evenly between the likes of Devin Booker and Chris Paul, it's just an incredible luxury to have in a playoff series because either of them on their own might be overmatched in a, in a matchup with a guy like Luka or overmatched in a matchup even with a guy like Brandon Ingram who's coming into his own as a star player in this league and certainly as you get deeper into the playoffs. But like what intrigues me the most is why is CP3 so good? How is it that a six foot tall guard that is turning 37, I believe in the next week or so, how is it that he can be this incredibly impactful at this point of his career on the best team in the NBA by record, arguably overall anyway, how does he pull that off? And to me, it comes down to some basic core basketball philosophies that I have. And the fact that Chris Paul checks those boxes resoundingly. You've heard me talk about a bunch of different things over the course of the last couple of years on the show. I've talked about, let's focus on his scoring for a minute. I've talked about variety, how the difference between guys who are very repetitive in the way they attack, guys like James Harden, and guys who have variety in the way they attack, guys like Chris Paul. The ability to score in different spots on the floor. Chris Paul can come off of ball screens and shoot threes all day long. If he gets a big on switches, he can take threes all day long. He was hitting pull-up jump shots over Luka in switches a bunch in this game. If he gets over the top of screens, he can get into the mid-range. He can snake the pick-and-roll, take those fadeaway twos. If he gets bigs on switches, he can 
you you know work your side to side and take step back twos. He can get deeper into the lane and make floaters and push shots and crafty finishes around the rim. And then if the floor is spaced properly, that doesn't happen all the time because they do you know traditional screen and roll attacks. So you usually have a big man underneath the basket. So he's not getting a ton of layups, but in a five out system, he'd be able to beat you that way too. So as a scorer, he has that peak variety which is something that I've always talked about being super, super important, especially when you get to the postseason. Then we look at the playmaking side of things. You know, you're seeing this on display with Luka. Part of the reason why Luka is putting up monster scoring numbers in this series is Phoenix knows that they can't handle him if they double team him because he's just going to spray it around to shooters all night long. So they actually are in a predicament where their best bet is to let Luca try to attack guys in single coverage, and he's really getting just about whatever he wants there. Offense has not been the issue for the Mavericks in this series for the most part. But for Chris Paul, it's the exact same dynamic. His ability to consistently and surgically make the right read anytime you send additional defensive attention his way is what makes him so versatile in these environments. I've talked about how you know, playmaking in particular has always been one of my skill, the skills that I value the most when I'm watching the NBA. And part of the reason why is it's such a unique skill. Like when we look at high level, three level scorers, there's a shit ton of them in the league. I mean, there's a guy in Devin Booker. We're going to talk about him in a little bit. Like Devin Booker is so unbelievably good. And he's in a tier with a bunch of guys that do similar stuff as three level scorers, right? But when we're talking like, true high-level playmaking, it's Chris Paul, it's Luka Doncic, it's LeBron James, it's Nikola Jokic, and then it's a massive drop-off before you get to that fifth guy. That's what makes that skill so valuable. It comes at a premium in this league. There just aren't a lot of guys that can do it. And that ability to make those reads consistently and to even see what's not yet developed, that is what keeps Chris Paul on an island. That in combination with his ability to score from all three spots on the floor, makes him the devastating offensive player that he is, even at age 37, even at six feet tall. He's breaking everything that we understand about small guards in this league. Now, there's a ceiling there. We saw that last year against Milwaukee in the in the finals. If he runs into the right kind of defensive matchup with another guard that's, you know, especially a guy like Drew Holiday who can deal with any ball screen that Chris Paul throws his way and handle him in isolation scenarios, we can see him be limited. But that's why he's not the best player in the league. You know, That's why he's closer to the 10th best player in the league, right? But all of that is what makes him so devastating offensively at this point in his career. And then last but not least, he competes defensively. I was watching the film from game one this morning, and Chris Paul just doesn't die on any screen. He's a bulldog. He's incredibly difficult to deal with because he's so crafty. And even when Luca's try, trying to position him on certain parts of his body so that he can get to his moves in the post, Chris Paul will like detach from his body and then like fake lunge around one side and then come around the other way. Like he's just so committed to being an impact player on the defensive end of the floor that all of that rounds out into a 37 year old, six foot tall guy who's absolutely in the conversation to be a top 10 player in basketball. That's unbelievable. And it's a credit to him. I, we just talked about him after that Pelican series. I thought his game six closeout game was one of the best playoff performances in NBA history. It's on the list of you know 20 or 30 great games that you'll see in NBA history to go 14 for 14 with your star on a bad hamstring against a team that's been giving you a lot of problems. Chris Paul seems poised 
to have one of those playoff runs that erases a bad memory from last year. And that's a credit to him. I want to talk about Devin Booker for a second because you see a lot of guys like this in the league, you know, guys like Bradley Beal, guys like CJ McCollum, where if you catch them on the right night, they look like they can go toe-to-toe with any star in this league. But there's a consistency that separates the greats from the goods. And Devin Booker is starting to show night in, night out, consistency on both ends of the floor as a two guard that puts you in that upper echelon. He is another one of those guys, you know, one of the big reasons why I was pessimistic about Phoenix over the course of the last couple of years is I'm like, they don't really have a superstar. They have two guys that kind of combine into a superstar, but Chris Paul's late career surge and Devin Booker's flat out improvement, especially on the defensive end of the floor and with his consistency on offense, both of those guys are kind of vying for, like, I think I have Jason Tatum and, and J- John Morant kind of closer to that 10 spot, but you could argue Devin Booker and Chris Paul are both like right there at 11 and 12. And especially in a league this deep, 11 and 12 is, there's not a huge gap between those guys and the sixth and the seventh guys. That's the type of talent that we have at the top of the league right now. And those two guys together are what make this team so incredibly dangerous. I'm still a little bit lower on them than I am on Boston, but you know it's it's very very close between those two teams. This is why I've been picking Phoenix to get out of the West. You know they've showed us who they are consistently over the course of the last two years, and people need to pay attention. A couple other quick notes on this game. You know Mikael Bridges is becoming such a problem for Dallas. I did a whole video this morning. You can find it on my Twitter feed talking about the way that Mikael Bridges has been blowing up. Dallas is picking rolls by uh, fighting over the top of screens and applying back pressure on Luka Doncic and the problems that come with that. And so I laid down some ways that they could counter it, the least of which is getting switches before the pick and roll so that it's not Mikhail Bridges on Luka before he goes over that screen. And then secondly, just having Maxi Kleba set the screen so that when he pops to the three-point line, Mikhail Bridges has no choice but to relocate out to the shooter. And that's been... And so Dallas came into this game and immediately implemented all of that. And they were getting Mikhail off of Luka. But then the the problem with Mikhail Bridges, and it's a problem that I'm not sure that they're going to have a solution for in this series. And that's that's what separates the truly great teams from the good teams, is they have problems that you just can't deal with. But... Mikhail Bridges, you know, when we tra- when we teach traditional shell drill defense to our high school kids at the school that I coach at, you 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 tell them to get in the passing lane and to position themselves somewhere where they feel comfortable that if a swing pass was made to their man, that they'd be able to get there in time to contest a shot. And so it depends on your athleticism. If you're a bigger athlete, you can come further off the shooter. If you're less athletic, you have to stay closer to the shooter, right? Well, Mikhail Bridges. His ability to close out is so ridiculous that like, if this guy's the ball handler and this guy's the shooter, he can position himself damn near all the way at the ball handler and still close out. And you saw that a lot when Luca would get the switches and get off of Mikhail. Mikhail's damn near in a double team, like sitting on one of the sides of Luca that he would like to drive through, drive to. And there's a shooter open, but Mikhail's like, go ahead, throw it. I'm just going to be there. It's not an open shot. And that's the advantage of having basically a defensive player of the year type of level of, of wing defender alongside your stars. And then most importantly, when Phoenix locked in, you saw a stretch like this in that third quarter and then again in the fourth quarter with all of the defensive talent that Phoenix has, especially with Devin Booker being as committed as he is, 
with DeAndre Ayton on the back line, Jay Crowder as your bigger, more physical wing defender, they go through these they go through these stretches of defense where it's just you're hopeless. There's not really anything you can do. You know, like there there's no such thing as a great look. Like you can you have to settle for an okay look. And yeah, there are going to be times when guys that are the caliber of Luca are going to be able to score over that. But having that defensive ceiling, which is similar, no, I, I, I think Boston's defensive ceiling is considerably higher. But at the same time, having that type of defensive ceiling gives you the ability to squeeze teams like this. And it's a great thing to lean on, especially when you go through cold shooting stretches. Phoenix didn't shoot particularly well from three in this game until the basically until the second half of the fourth quarter. And having your defense to lean on there, that's a far more de- dependable thing. Couple quick notes on on Dallas. They defended better at certain stretches, and stops are so important for this Dallas team because attacking Phoenix's defense when it's set is extremely difficult. Every time they got a stop and they quickly pushed the ball up the floor, most of the time they were able to get cross matches. So cross matches in transition defense, we've talked about how you're supposed to sprint back to the paint and then you spread out to shooters, right? Well, typically that leads to cross matches because if you're in a transition defensive defense situation where you're just grabbing the nearest guy, typically you're not guarding your usual matchup. And so when when Dallas was able to get stops and then push the ball up the floor, they'd get Luka onto other defensive players and not have to go through all of the janky stuff to get Mikhail Bridges switched off. And one of the issues that they were having is in set defense situations, by the time they got Mikhail Bridges off of Luka, there'd be like eight seconds on the shot clock. So then even if Luka generated an advantage, if he had to kick it out, the only option is a catch and shoot. There's no opportunity to continue to further the advantage. Whereas when they got stops, Luke would be able to get an advantage early in the clock. Now he's making that kick out with like 17 seconds on the shot clock. Now that guy can attack the closeout and kick it to another guy who maybe he has time to attack the closeout. Now that's when you get great shots. And so the issue for Dallas in this series is, are they ever going to be able to get to a point where they can get a significant amount of stops? And it, you know, a huge part of this right now is the problem with Luca. And you know, Luca's one of my favorite players, but you know, you're, he's venturing into that range where he's being considered with the best players in the league. And there's a standard that comes with that. Carson and I have talked a lot about Luca's conditioning and how that's the next step for him. Right now, you can tell there's two things that are hurting Luca on the defensive end of the floor. One thing is obviously he's saving energy. He has so much that he has to do on the offensive end that there's a certain amount of like, here's my opportunity to rest. I will concede X number of of defensive breakdowns for the sake of having the legs to carry us offensively. That's related to conditioning. And then secondly, some of it is physical tools, right? Like he just doesn't quite have the foot speed to cover enough ground to be a really effective defensive player. That's also related to his physical conditioning. You know, Luka Doncic is an example of a guy that throughout his career has always been the best player in every setting that he's been in. And then he comes into the NBA and he's already damn near the best player. But in order to win an NBA championship, you have to be able to go against guys that are taking it another level of serious. Chris Paul, literally the way he takes care of his body, the way that guys like Giannis take care of his body, the way that guys like LeBron take care of their body, there's this other level that Lucas still has to get to in terms of his own peak physical conditioning. And if he doesn't embrace that, it will consistently hold him back in this specific area of the game on the defensive end of the floor. If he embraces the fact that he needs to get into peak physical condition, show up into training camp already at your midseason weight, show up into training camp, even maybe a step above that, 
reaching whatever your individual physical ceiling is, that's what's going to allow him to not need to conserve energy on the defensive end of the floor, to have the foot speed, to be able to cover ground and be more impactful on the defensive end. And most importantly, he's already this good on the offensive end with all that extra weight that he's carrying around, basically wearing a weight vest. So imagine how good he could be offensively if he replaced a certain amount of that with lean muscle and reached his peak physical conditioning. There was a play in that second half where like, he had a sloppy closeout on Jay Crowder, and Jay Crowder just went right around him and dropped it off to, I think, JaVale McGee for a dunk under the basket. And I'm watching, I'm like, look, man, I know you're resting, but that's way too easy. Like, you got to at least be able to hold Jay Crowder in this role. Like, Luca simply has to be better defensively. If there's one silver lining that I would point to if I was a Dallas fan, they did defend a little better for specific stretches. But most importantly, we saw some signs of life out of Spencer Dinwiddie. That's the guy that's been their least consistent perimeter initiator in this playoff run. They need him to be great in order to have any chance to win this series. And he played a lot better tonight. So you have a couple of things to build on going back to Dallas. But... This is the predicament. Now, if you do not get both games in Dallas, you're coming back to Phoenix down 3-1. So there's a lot of pressure on Dallas. I picked uh, uh, Phoenix to win this series, but I picked them in six because I thought Dallas would push the series out. I still believe Luka will find a way to get at least one game. Could be wrong, but I just have too much confidence in that dude and his ability to create things offensively and to strangle the pace of a game to not get one. But we are going to find out. Really quickly, we're going to move on to this Philadelphia-Miami game. Not going to talk too much about this one because, again, there's just no point in really dwelling on it because these are fake basketball games. These two games involve, you know, 38 to 42 minutes of Joel Embiid not taking place, right? So Joel Embiid, there's some intel. I have no idea if it's legitimate or not, but there's some intel that Joel Embiid is potentially going to be handed the league MVP trophy in, in his home games, I, I heard some reports about league executives that are going to potentially be at the game. Confusing to me because I thought Jokic was going to win. But either way, Joel Embiid it was in that conversation and is in the conversation for potentially being the best player in the world. So him missing from these two games, especially when Philly has basically no options else to go to at the center position, just makes it so there's not a whole lot to learn here. Miami fans, again, I keep telling you, there will be a point and we will do more deep dives into your team. It's just right now, they have the, they've had by far the easiest path to this point, and the, the type of competition they've been playing makes it really difficult to learn about them. So we're going to wait. Uh, one quick note on this. They get 55 points out of Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris, which I said was what they needed to try to steal a game. But again, and this is what's been killing them, it's the it's Doc Rivers and his insistence on using centers. Look around the league. How many traditional centers right now are being played in these playoff series? Like Phoenix is playing three of them, but one of them is like a future all-star in DeAndre Ayton. And JaVale McGee and Bismack Biombo are both extremely mobile. They move their feet really well. JaVale McGee does it for his lack of foot speed. He makes up for it with ridiculous length and athleticism, right? So like they can get away with playing guys like that in today's NBA, but you wouldn't, you know, essentially it, there's a baseline of either offensive skill or defensive capability with mobility that you have to hit to be playable as a center in this league. Maxi Kleba is not great defensively, but he brings this perimeter shooting element and the ability to attack closeouts a little bit so he can play, right? You know, like Golden State, they barely played Kevon Looney in game two. They played him, I think, just under nine minutes, you know, like they're, 
erring towards using him less and less. You know, Memphis has completely dropped Steven Adams out of the rotation. Boston just DMP'd coach decision uh, Daniel Tice, so they're not playing him anymore, and he can even shoot threes, right? Like, you're literally seeing all these coaches around the league ditch their traditional centers. Why? Because they're paying attention to what's happening directly in front of their eyes, and Doc Rivers just doesn't see it. In that first half, DeAndre Jordan was like minus nine or whatever he was, and and uh, and Paul Reed was like minus four, or minus seven, or something like that. I can't remember. But then, right at the end of the second quarter, here here he goes and plays five guards, and they immediately are plus six, and they went into the half down eight after being down big the rest of the half. And then he didn't play that group at all until about halfway through the fourth quarter when the game was already over. It's just. It's incredibly frustrating because, like, again, and, and it doesn't really matter. Like this little, this whole DeAndre Jordan conversation is a fake problem that was brought up by the Joel Embiid situation. But look, man, if Joel Embiid's going to miss games one and game two, you have an obligation to try to go down to Miami and attempt to steal a game. And the best way to do it is not to play the same way you play, but to ditch your best player in the world candidate for arguably the worst center in all of basketball. The best way to do it is to jank things up, go wild card, do really weird stuff, and just try to squeeze a fake win out. And I thought their best opportunity to do that was by playing five perimeter players and Doc just, every time he did it in the first two games, it went well for him with exception of that stretch right there in the fourth quarter tonight when the game was already over, but he just never leaned on it enough for it to matter and that's a damn shame because he got 55 points out of Tyrese Maxey and Tobias Harris and it just wasn't enough. One last note, Jimmy Butler was incredible again tonight, 22-12. and 12. Just same things that I was saying about Chris Paul relate to Jimmy Butler. The reason why he's so impactful in the playoffs is he has that three-level scoring in variety, right? So he doesn't come at you the same way every time. That make that keeps you on your toes. He has a back-to-the-basket game. He has a lot of, like, pirouetting, like, using his body position type of, like, floaters and turnarounds in the post that make him extremely difficult to guard. And, yeah, he's not a great three-point shooter, but if you leave him out there, he has the capability to burn you. And then... He's a great playmaker. 12 assists again tonight. Consistently, he's had that point forward capability. That big, strong guy from the perimeter that can initiate offense both as a scorer and as a passer just brings so much value in the NBA playoffs. And then he brings that defensive you know, weapon that that is so important at this level. And so I just don't think it's a coincidence that we see guys like Jimmy Butler and Chris Paul succeed in this environment. And guys, that's why I value those skills so much. That's why I value playmaking. That's why I value offensive variety. That's why I value commitment to defense. That's why I value your physical conditioning. Those are all things that are consistently, year in and year out, demonstrated to be incredibly important in the NBA playoffs, we have to pay attention to that. And we definitely need to put additional value on those things when we're evaluating basketball players. Really quickly, before we bring my guy Carson on, make sure you like this video. Make sure you subscribe to the Volumes YouTube channel. Make sure you check out our newsletter. There's a link in the description of this video underneath. It's a great way to keep up with all our content. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT. The playoffs are here, and you can make every game feel like Game 7 on FanDuel Sportsbook, an official partner of the NBA. FanDuel is hooking you up with free bets throughout the playoffs. It doesn't matter if you're a new customer or already have an account. Just be sure to check out the app for exclusive weekly same-game parlay promos. FanDuel has so many ways to play, and best of all, when you win, you'll get paid faster than a fast break. New to FanDuel? Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code JasonT. Once again, that's promo code JasonT.
We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere, like at your pregame barbecue. While you prep your meats, that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch, garage, and the car inside. And without the right home and auto insurance coverage, the cost to repair this could eat up your savings. So bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this. Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. To see all the video breakdowns I do that back up the things that we talk about on the show. All right, we're going to bring my guy Carson on. We're going to zoom out and we're going to talk about some more macro topics around the league. What's up, Carson? I'm doing great, Jason. How are you? I can't complain, man. I can't complain. We're talking about basketball. That's fantastic. We certainly are. In fact, we've got the five biggest questions of the night that we're going to talk about here. And we're going to start with that game that you just briefly touched on. That being, of course, Sixers Heat game two. I think one of the major storylines that we have seen throughout this season, and particularly throughout this playoff run, something you've talked about a lot, is the obvious decline of James Harden, where he's averaging under 19 a game in these playoffs on 40% shooting. It was a subpar finish to the regular season. He hasn't scored more than 22 points in a since March 29th. That's over a month of basketball, which is crazy for a guy who averaged 35 a game in consecutive seasons. So another underwhelming performance tonight. Jason, is James Harden just cooked? You know, it's hard to say because there is the hamstring, excuse me, the hamstring element in this. Yeah. Um, but the hamstring element feels like it's been around for years now. Um, you know, this this is the thing. I re- I saw an article that showed up on you know that like Twitter Discover page that I scroll through sometimes, and in mm-hmm. it it was like it was just like a health based article, and it was talking about like the difference between your chronological age and your biological age. Essentially, the difference mm-hmm. between you aging simply on the calendar versus like wear and tear. Not just physically right. in terms of like joint injuries and things like that, but like, like how much time do you spend absorbing UV rays? <laughs> like how how much alcohol do you consume? How many other drugs right. do you consume? Like what kind of food do you eat? Like how do you take care of ter- in terms of like your cholesterol, your blood pressure, and all those things? Like you age in different ways, and mm-hmm. you know there was a dis- there was a definitive thing that happened, a definitive moment in Chris Paul's career. I think cr- juxtaposing Chris and James is super interesting because they have personal beef, but like uh, you know Chris Paul he pulls his hamstring in 
one of the most pivotal moments of his basketball career, right? And it costs him. Well, I, there's no guarantee that Golden State doesn't come out and win those last two games. I hate when people t- talk in guarantees. There's no guarantee that the Warriors win game five if Draymond plays in the 2016 finals. There's no guarantee that the Rockets lose in 2018 or win in 2018 based on a Chris Paul injury. You still have to play the games. The games are different based on who's on the floor. But Chris Paul, had he won that series, they would have beat the Cavs if he was healthy. He would be a championship a champion right now. Well, after that year, there was a a, a very well-documented change in Chris Paul's approach to his own health. Because from 2012 to 2018, it was frequent that Chris Paul dealt with injuries at a bunch of different points in playoff series that cost him chances, right? And so he becomes a vegan. There was a bunch of a consistent video footage that he would do additional workouts after games to continue to strengthen his conditioning, right? And what do you know? Like the dude... Hasn't he broke his hand during the regular season this year? But that's an impact injury. The dude's been available in all the big moments since then, you know, because it's not rocket science. Like you, you get what you put in, whatever what you get out of your body is what you put into your body. You have to take care of it. You only get one of them, right? We juxtapose that with James Harden, who is literally so famous for attending strip clubs that at one point there was a viral chart that went out where someone juxtaposed his stats with the cities that he would play in based on their like like Zagat guide strip clubs. <laughs> and, and there was like a, a clear line that showed that he would play better when he played in cities that had worse strip clubs. And like, and obviously that's a joke and there's probably just that's probably just coincidental. But the, the point is is James Harden hasn't taken good care of his body. And the wild thing is we we tweeted out the volume tweeted out our little rant the other night about when we, the last time we juxtaposed these two guys with each other and someone that I follow actually commented underneath it and was complaining, like, it's unfair for you to jump on James now that he's on the decline. Like you're forgetting about how good he was at his peak. And I wanted to be like, he's 32. (laughs) (laughs) He's 32 years old. Like, dude, he is in the prime of his career. There is absolutely no excuse for him to have declined this far. He has not suffered a torn ACL. He has not suffered a torn Achilles. He's had soft tissue issues. He's he, there's 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 and soft tissue issues typically come down to conditioning and that kind of stuff anyway, right? So it's like it, there's just absolutely no excuse for James Harden to have declined as much as he had. Literally in this playoff run, he's averaging 18.8 points, 5.4 rebounds, 9.4 assists on 40% shooting, 35% from the field. 89% from the free throw line is obviously still good there. He just can't get there nearly as frequently as he used to. It's just this, we're not talking about a max contract play anymore. We're not even talking about a star anymore. Let's just, let's just, let's cut the shit guys. He's a lot closer to D'Angelo Russell than he is to Luka Doncic at this point. That's the, that's the reality of the James Harden problem at this point. I don't, you know, we talked a lot about a couple weeks ago about what the the Sixers should do with them after this playoff run. Like, do you max him or do you not? And don't get me wrong, I still think you got to try to find a way to keep him for the sake of the asset. But like, we're dangerously near the territory of like, is any of the thirty teams in the league going to offer this guy a max contract for for a D'Angelo Russell type of player? I mean, again, he's better than D'Angelo Russell. I'm just saying he's closer to that than he is to the stars at the top of the league. It's a real problem, and I don't know, I don't know what you do at this point, but like. You, you, when you're pointing the finger, you point the, the you point the finger at James. He didn't take care of his body. He aged himself way faster than athletes for, normally do. He's the Allen Iverson of this era, and this is the kind of thing that happens when you do that. It is remarkable. I mean, just when you put into context that it was literally 
two years ago that he averaged 34 a game and a year before that that he averaged 36 a game. And I think obviously you've touched on a lot of it, but it really is obvious, the physical deterioration. And hamstring or not, he just doesn't separate. And obviously his game has never been explosiveness. It's always been change in pace and those little bursts of acceleration and deception and craftiness. But I mean, outside of the step back three, it's tough for him to create a clean look for himself. In the paint, it feels like everything is tough. And as you've said, I mean, he's just not getting there as much. So it's obviously a major problem. And when he can't step up and assert himself like that, when Embiid isn't even out there, it kind of leaves this Sixers team just in a brutal spot. I think the D'Lo comment is interesting. I want to play a little game within the game here for you and just throw out <laughs> some guys. And you tell me if right now you would rather have them or James Harden. Let's start with Shea Gilgis Alexander. Would you rather have him or James Harden? Oh, gosh. I think I'd still go with James Harden there just because we don't know what Shea looks like in a, I mean, well, we do know what he looks like in a playoff environment. He was not great in the bubble. Um, mm-hmm. But like in terms of, and I still value playmaking a great deal. The one, the one thing that, yeah. that James Harden does still bring to the table at this point is like he's in that tier of playmakers right below the top, and there is a great deal of value yeah. in that specifically. It's just you can't have your team built around him as an offensive fulcrum anymore. But you can't do that with Shea either. So I, man, like like in terms of building my franchise around him, like yeah, I'd take Shea. But like if I had it, if right. I had to pick a guy for a playoff series tomorrow, I'd still take James. Okay, what about C.J. McCollum or James Harden? Oh, that's a lot closer. I <laughs> you had oh. to go to a, your Zen place there for a moment. Yeah, I think, I think, I think I'd go C.J. But it's very close. I think wow. I think C.J. is a little bit better defensively at this point because James is still like he's still just all over the place on the defensive end of the floor. Um, that three-level scoring, I think, is something you can still lean. Because I'm accepting the reality that, at this point, neither of those guys are a number one. But I think if I had mm-hmm. a good number one, I'd rather have CJ as my number two than James as my number two. Okay, last one. I think that you've probably already given away your answer based on the CJ one, but you did have some gripes with this guy in the last series. Donovan Mitchell or James Harden? Oh, James Harden, easily. Do- Donovan Mitchell... Oh, interesting. The he... Yeah, uh, the thing, I think Donovan Mitchell is, his decision-making is so poor as an offensive fulcrum. When you combine that with his, uh, like, his defensive issues, and then the fact that his jump shot is so streaky, I just, I think that James Harden, I think Donovan Mitchell is, I think Donovan Mitchell is having a wake-up call this year, and I expect him to have some sort of significant improvement in the coming years. But if I was picking a guy for a playoff series tomorrow, I'd rather have James. Because at least I can trust James to at least organize guys and put people in the right spots, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, like you said, his command of the game, his poise, his playmaking is still unequivocally top level. The pace that he plays with, but the scoring regression has obviously been stark. Okay, let's move on from this little Harden hate party And let's talk about Grizzlies Warriors, which I think is obviously a really fun series. Maybe the most interesting one going right now. We saw a monster John Morant performance last night, 47 piece. So Jason, given that level that he's playing right now, is Jaw the best player in that series? Ooh, no, but it's close. And I never would have thought that it'd be close. Steph is 
playing pretty well in this playoff run so far. 27.3 points, 4.1 rebounds, 5.6 assists, 47% from the field, 39% from three, 76% from the line. Obviously, you know, with, with Steph, his like his playoff three point percentage has always kind of been just a, just a touch under 40. So like you could make a case that, you know, after that slump that he had earlier in the season and, and him coming back from this injury, he actually looks pretty close to what he was before. The thing was Steph, the, the one leg up that jaw has, because Steph has a bunch of clear advantages over John Morant. I think that even though even though Jaw is averaging over ten assists per game in this postseason, I think that Steph is better at generating quality looks for his teammates. Steph Steph's playmaking doesn't manifest in terms of assists. Steph's playmaking manifests in terms of defensive attention that he absorbs and consistent four on three opportunities for his teammates. Right. So, like, I think that Steph still is a definitively better offensive engine in terms of creating shots for his teammates. I think that Steph is a significantly better defensive player, and that's a huge uh, factor here. Like Golden State, Golden State has really struggled with finding places to ways to attack Jaw. That's something they're going to have to figure out as the series progresses. They've been hiding him, but the problem is, is Golden State's not a great rim pressuring team in terms of like isolation situations. They get rim pressure off of attacking closeouts when their guards gather attention. So. They don't have a guy that's just going to consistently stare Ja Morant in the face and drive to the basket on him the way that Anthony Edwards did in the last round, right? So that's their mm-hmm. issue right now. But Jaws, Jaws defensive issues are real issues, and I expect Steve Kerr to find ways to attack him over the course of the series. So Steph has a bunch of clear advantages there. His experience, his decision-making, I'm always going to favor, especially guys that have been there a bunch of times. So Steph is the best player in the series, but... The one swing factor and the one thing that Jaw has on Steph right now, and it also happens to be their best chance to win the series, is what you saw last night. That supreme unguardability in single coverage yeah. situations. Not that Steph doesn't have some of that. He does. But even when Steph was at his absolute peak, his individual shot creation in isolation situations, especially in the playoffs, was not quite at the level of some of his peers at the top of the league, Kevin Durant, the LeBrons, guys like that, right? So, and again, that's not a slander to Steph. He's very good at that specific skill. He's just a touch below his peers at the top of the league. Well, Ja literally just walked down one of the best defenses in the league last night. Every single possession, top of the key, one four low, isolation, and won a game doing it and getting whatever shot he wanted in the process. And during that whole stretch, he could have just pulled up a three every time if he wanted to. And there will be a point in his career where he adds that to his game and it becomes even more problematic. So again, Steph's the best player in the series, but it's close. And the reason why it's close is Ja is flashing that supreme unguardability in individual situations, even at the top levels of playoff basketball. And I do think that that's a very valuable asset. But again, his decision-making is an issue. He's 42% from the field, 30% from three. Um, yeah. that's a big part of that is just, he takes tough shots. Sometimes he settles a lot of the time he gets off. He gets a little too like caught up in the moment and will try crazy stuff from time to time. That's all inexperience. And those are all advantages that go to Steph. But again, that's the one area where jaw has an advantage. I totally agree with you being on the Steph side of this, but I also totally agree with you on the jaw advantage. And I think that's always been one of the most interesting things engaging Steph's value. It's that he can have such a tremendous impact without even having to touch the ball, right? By just existing, his gravity, the attention he demands at all times. But at the same time, it's like you said, 
Some guys are just much better at directly imposing themselves. And very few people right now are better than at that than Jaw, who can just go at you athletically over and over and over again and challenge your best guy on the perimeter and win that matchup and force your defense to bring help. And now guys have to rotate. And it's just like every time he drives, it feels like he can kick out to somebody. But I totally agree. I mean, these have been two really impressive games from Jaw, but there's some things that are unsustainable. I mean, he can really get into the lane at will. But he's made nine threes in these two games. You know, when he's doing that, it's like, yeah, he probably is the best player in the series because Jaw making four and a half threes a game is like, what could be missing there? But I guess the T-Wolves, the guy shot sub 39% from the field. He was 20% from three. He had some issues with turnovers. So I would say it's still comfortable in my mind, just over a larger sample size. But like, there's no denying that Jaw is point blank one of the most unguardable guys one-on-one in the league right now. Yeah, you know, the Minnesota thing was interesting because we saw the Pat Beverly tw- the tweet where he's like, yeah. well, you didn't see him score <laughs> yeah. 47 against us. And like, Which yeah. is like, dude, like, oh, like you have to understand, like you have to understand that it doesn't come off with the public the way you think it does. <laughs> you know what I mean? But uh, again, we talked about it a lot on this show. Minnesota was one of the best perimeter contained teams in this league. And so they did a much better job of positioning themselves between Ja and the basket and he struggled. And so, you know, and that's that kind of like versatility and being immune to specific situations is what separates a guy like Steph from a guy like Jaw. It's what separates the the top tier guys from the guys that are in the tier right below. You know, like like right. for instance, like Steph will encounter defensive matchups that make him struggle in certain ways, just like Jaw did in the first round. But that's where his all-world gravity in addition to yeah. what he does on the defensive end of the floor and in his addition to like his ability to have these little flurries where teams lose track of him and then he'll get hot and make you know 12 points in four minutes or whatever it is, those kinds of things are what allow him to heavily impact the game when he's struggling. Whereas like when you're watching that that series in the first round with Ja, like he looked straight up flummoxed at certain points in the series. Now he did what it was necessary to win the series, so I don't want to undercut that at all. But again, like that mm-hmm. versatility goes a long way. But that's what you're. T- <clears throat> Excuse me. What you're talking about with that supreme offensive unguardability, it's the same thing with Joel Embiid. Like, look at how much different that Philadelphia team looks when everybody's operating in traditional coverages. Whereas when mm-hmm. Joel Embiid is on the floor, he just is such a problem with unguardability that he's consistently yeah. warping your defense with the way you have to guard him. So Jaw gives you some of that as well. And that's again, it's a great foundational skill, but the difference between this jaw and peak jaw in his prime is jaw will be a better decision maker, a much better defensive player. He'll have a little bit more heft to him so he doesn't have issues with strength. And he's going to fill those things out just like Steph did as he got older. But right now, Steph is just the smarter, you know, he's going to, I expect, especially as this series progresses, for Steph to have more impact than jaw. Yeah, I would agree. But it is remarkable how jaw just. I mean, we saw it in last year's playoffs, really. He is just willing to go such absolute takeover mode for an entire game. I mean, obviously he scored 30 a game in last year's playoffs, but like his playmaking impact is up in these playoffs. He's over 10 assists a game. I think he's taken 30 shots in each of the last two games or like, yeah, I'm pretty sure 31 in each. So it's just a crazy willingness to just keep coming at you like we talked about. Let's flip this to Steph for a second though, because obviously... The Warriors have emerged as a very legitimate title contender, which 
I don't know if a lot of people were expecting that a year ago, obviously. It was such a roller coaster from the Katie and Clay injuries in the 2019 finals loss to actually getting back to the start of the season. But now that they are firmly in that conversation, we have to ask, I think, Jason, what would a fourth title mean for Steph's legacy? Well, first of all, that part you brought up is super interesting. The the need to have like the difference between last year's Warriors team and this year's Warriors team is really just role players. Like, yeah, Steph was better. Steph was better last year. Like this year, I think was the first year of his physical decline. Mm-hmm. Steph was. I thought. I thought Steph was had a legitimate case to be the best player in all of basketball last year. Obviously, mm-hmm. that deflated when he missed the playoffs. But like Draymond Green was a monster last year, and it just wasn't enough because they didn't have any veterans. It was all young players and like Kent Bazemore. And that lack of like savvy from the per- the perimeter role players ended up really hurting them, especially in their system where decision-making off of attention from Steph is so important. Fast forward to this year, it's like you upgrade to an Otto Porter Jr. You upgrade to an Andre Iguodala. You bring... You know, just more veteran presences into the room. Obviously, Jordan Poole massively improved, but like you, you, you bring in like quality role players alongside Steph and Draymond, and then even with a decline from Steph, they look significantly better than they were last year. That's just why that stuff is so important, and that's a silver lining if you're a Lakers fan, by the way, because LeBron and AD are still there. If you make the right moves this offseason, you can go a long way towards improving the situation. As far as the 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 championship goes. Because there is a realistic chance. And I can already see this coming because if Steph wins a fourth championship, a lot of conversations are going to start taking place. Because a fourth championship for Steph would mean that he has as many championships as LeBron James, twice as many championships as Kevin Durant, all in the same jersey, spanning a time period from 2015 to 2022. It'd be a remarkable accomplishment. Now, you're going to have some Warriors fans that are going to take, if that happens, that are going to take that and run with it like like it's the end of the world, right? You're going to have comments like, he's the best player of this era, he's better than LeBron, he's in the GOAT conversation, all this stuff. I wouldn't go that far um, because I think there's a difference between... like. Steph's titles in 2017 and 2018 alongside Kevin Durant don't match the degree of difficulty of any of LeBron's four championships. So I wouldn't put him on that level. However, you got to put him ahead of Larry Bird at that point. You got to put him firmly. You got to put him firmly in the conversation with like Magic Johnson and Kobe Bryant. Now, for me, these lists get weird because I don't keep bigs on the same list as a guard. To me, they play a completely Mm. different sport. You're right. Like Mm -hmm. if you can't dribble the ball up the floor and initiate offense, I don't think you should be in the same list as guys that do that. So I keep a separate list for all the greatest bigs of all time. And then my list for the greatest players of all time is like I have MJ at number one. I have LeBron at number two. I have Kobe at number three. Then I have Magic and then I have Larry Bird. I think you easily push Steph over Larry Bird for number five. And I think you could make a solid case to put him even at three. Uh, up there with with uh, ahead of Magic and ahead of Kobe. But the problem is, is I think there's a pretty big gap between two and three on that list. I think LeBron, I think LeBron and MJ are on a tier by themselves atop right. the league. And I even you could even make the case that there's a little gap between MJ and LeBron. Uh, but like that's a, that's an amazing case for a guy that was for a guy that came up through Davidson, 
for a guy that had his the beginning of his career marred by injuries to definitively have a case as a top five perimeter player in the history of basketball would be an unbelievable accomplishment. Obviously, he still has to do it, but like, dude, it's there. It's the the potential is there. They have the pieces they need to do it. It's a big part of it. It's going to come down to matchups. Phoenix played three really good centers tonight, right? Like three centers that had a deep impact against Dallas, right? So mm-hmm. obviously there are going to be matchup problems for Golden State along the way, uh, but they absolutely have a chance to do it. They're they're in that, I, I'd say Boston one, I'd say Phoenix two, and then I'd probably say Milwaukee, Golden State tied for three. So all four of those teams have a real chance. And if Steph does it, like, man, he's got one hell of a resume at that point. So I can't help but notice that you didn't bring up Kevin Durant at all in terms of the hierarchy. That's where my mind goes first is comparing those two in this context. So do you think that Steph is just definitively past KD if he wins another title, like comfortably so? I think Steph's definitively past KD right now. Interesting. Um, KD's KD. <sighs> The issue with KD's legacy is he got strapped to a really poor decision maker to start his career in Russell Westbrook. Mm-hmm. You guys all know how I feel about him. We don't have to get any further into that. Yeah. Then he won he won two championships, but they had an optic appear like their optics of those two championships were poor. They just you did you didn't see Kevin Durant have to dig deep down three two in a series to pull out a tough game on the road. It was like the iconic moment of Kevin Durant winning his uh, in those two years. The iconic moment is him hitting a shot over LeBron James. That was their 15th consecutive playoff win, okay? Like, that just doesn't carry weight with the masses the way that LeBron having a chase down in a Game 7 uh, uh, tied 3-3 when they were down three games to one or, you know, like Steph Curry coming back from down 3-1 or down 2-1 in the year he won the title against uh, uh, against Memphis or against Cleveland in 2015. Like all of these guys that are ahead of him on the list, they have these like definitive moments of struggle. And then the problem was is after KD wins these two relatively easy championships, he moves on to this Brooklyn situation where he hitched his wagon to another vagabond. And now he's dealing mm-hmm. with Kyrie and he's not available and he can't, he's not winning here. So it's like, I think I, I've said this on the show several times and I mean it. Like there's a version of KD's story where he's the GOAT. And pretty much all it involves is being in better situations and a little bit better commitment to defense. Those two things would have definitively put him in that conversation. The issue, because KD's ceiling as a three level scorer and as a defensive rim protector is as high as any player who's ever played the game. Like that's how good that guy is. But his resume just doesn't even come close to touching Steph or LeBron. Not even in the same, like it's not close, in my opinion. The year in, year out, Offensive engine stuff, the the consistent com- competition for championships. He just doesn't compete with ten trips to the finals or everything that Steph's done in a Golden State jersey. It's just not. I I I love KD. He's one of my favorite players, and I don't understand why so many people dislike him so much. Because I actually find mm-hmm. him to be one of the most likable players in the NBA. Like he's so authentic. He doesn't bullshit you the way that LeBron does. Like LeBron's literally tweeting out like, "Oh, ask me anything during the game tonight." It's like, dude, they're yeah. playing playoff <laughs> games right now. Like you're. You, this isn't about you anymore. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. I find LeBron's my favorite player. I find him to be unlikable a lot of times off the court. Like KD is super likable, super authentic. For whatever reason, he just doesn't resonate with people, and that's a huge bummer. But like the the reality of the situation is this: his basketball resume just doesn't touch Steph or LeBron's. 
Well, first of all, Jason, I would just like to say I loved your use of the word vagabond, and I think that's a word that goes dramatically <laughs> underutilized today. That's really interesting. Do you think it's so decisive? Because what I always find difficult to assess is like, yeah, obviously Steph checks a couple more boxes in terms of, I think, resume when you're talking about really winning the solo title and elevating a team that didn't have another true superstar, although it was an incredibly complete team, but obviously such a massively important offensive engine, one of the best that we've ever seen in terms of amplifying other talent, a phenomenal scorer in every way, like just an unbelievable offensive player. What's difficult for me is that I just don't know how many years of their careers I have thought Steph Curry is a better basketball player than Kevin Durant. Like, when they were together, you know, there was always the information about how without KD, they would still cruise and they would be utterly dominant. And without Steph, things would kind of fall apart, right? And I think that that's obviously true when you see that with the on-off numbers throughout Steph's career. Like, he is utterly vital in a way that KD as a one-on-one scorer maybe can't replicate. At the same time, there was just always that feeling of like, okay, well, we know who can go to takeover mode in just a completely different way. We know who can average 35 a game in the finals. And, you know, if we're slipping against the Clippers a little bit inexplicably, KD's going to be the one to average 35 a game and just completely cut this team's throat. And I just feel like he obviously has more longevity because Steph's peak came a little later. He is, to me, maybe the most skilled scorer of all time. I think he's certainly got to be in the top two. I think he's the most complete given that just in Jordan's era, obviously, I mean, the three just wasn't as valued and wasn't a significant part of his arsenal. I mean, I do think he's the better defensive player throughout their careers. I think in terms of individual playmaking, Steph has a slight edge, but it's not massive. So it's just like the skill set thing for me and just comparing them in my individual year to year, who do I think is the better basketball player? I feel like most years I come up with KD. So I don't know. Does that resonate with you at all? Like, is that a factor or do you just disagree? Dude, that that all makes perfect sense. Like, and I and I get it. Like, here's the thing, dude. Like, there are nights where I watch Kevin Durant play basketball, and I'm like, oh my god, that's the best basketball player I've ever seen. There are nights, there are nights that I feel that way. You know, in terms of like his complete, otherworldly unguardability. But the the reality of the situation is, is and for the record, when I'm that, when I'm ranking basketball players, that's different than like an all time ranking. Like I told you guys, I thought Kevin Durant was the best player in the world this year. I had to relent after he struggled so much against Boston. But like like that's how much I value what KD brings to the table as a basketball player on both ends of the floor. That's how much I value. But resumes, the the all time rankings of players are strictly about results. It's just the reality of the situation. Okay. Now, again, he's had bad luck. Like, he didn't pick Russ, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Right. And, like, like, how many playoff games did Russ take more shots than Kevin Durant in a big moment? Happened all the time. Like, Russ is... You can make a serious case that Russ's decision-making hampered Kevin Durant in the in his early playoff career. But, like, the, the reality of KD's playoff resume is he struggled with a player that I thought hold, held him back in a lot of ways. Then he won two championships... Uh, in on a team that had won 73 games without him. And so there was a level of ease that that undercut the quality of that accomplishment. And then he hitched right. his wagon to Kyrie Irving and it hasn't been enough talent for him to win a title. And so like the reality is, is as much as I value his individual skill set, he doesn't bring mm-hmm. the results to the table that justify putting him in the conversations with guys like Larry Bird and Magic Johnson, whereas LeBron's ahead of those guys and Steph is trending in the direction of being in that conversation. 
you know that that's just it's just the real reality of the situation and like and again like it, it, it's tough because I, I've talked about this before, but like LeBron, when he partnered with Dwayne Wade, I think he intended for that to be as easy as it was for KD and Golden State. It just yeah. <laughs> happened to not, it happened to not be. And so LeBron had to reach back. Like think of the, the summer after LeBron went to Miami was the summer when he became the better basketball player. Like he, he, he went to Miami and was humbled into having to make significant improvements. And you know, that, that's the thing like that's, that always resonate, that always resonates with the fans. The struggle resonates with fans. That's just the reality. It's why we root for underdogs. It's why you don't like it. That's why when there's a favorite every year, that like like when 2017, 2018 Warriors were around, everybody hated them. People don't like to root for the guy on top. They like to root for the underdog. They like to root for teams that are at a disadvantage. And so when they see a star with their back against the wall and they have to reach down deep and they have to pull something out of like the deepest, like like the to, out of their deepest reserves as a basketball player, in order to come out on top, that just that buys you so much cachet with the general public. And Katie either has fallen short or accomplished it in a manner that appeared to be easy, and and that just hurts you in the court of public opinion. We've talked about it on the show before, but again, you make a very good case, Carson, and you're right there. There are a lot of years where I've been like, man, KD might be that guy. But for whatever reason, the results aren't there. And this specific conversation about all-time rankings, that's where the results matter the most. It is so tough because obviously there's no room for theoreticals. I think you're totally right on that. But it is for me still just like, I think maybe I see it. Maybe I don't see it quite as absolutely just because it's like, obviously people talk about the ring culture and whatnot. And it's just when a guy plays basketball for 15 years, 82 games every year, and then the playoffs, sometimes it's like we view whether or not you win a game seven as being totally determinative in your value as a basketball player. And that's just tough. Obviously, I'm not saying that you're doing that, but it's just like results are unquestionably the most important thing, but there is an element of that skill set and just, you know, believing what did I see night to night? that I feel like has to factor in there somewhere. But either way, I think they're very, for me, they're very close all time. But I honestly think as things stand now, I would still lean KD because of what I laid out there. Okay, last question here, Jason. We're moving on, although I thought that was a very fun debate. Let's talk a little Bucks Celtics because Boston is favored on FanDuel right now, even though the Bucks obviously have regained home court by splitting games in Boston. Are you picking them to win the series? I'm still picking Boston. I mean, again, my biggest takeaway from the first two games was that it's not going to be easy. Not that I thought it would be easy. Easy is the wrong word, but it's not going to be quick. I thought it would. I thought Boston would win games one and two, and I thought they'd lose game three. Then I thought they'd win games four and five. Well, losing game one just puts you in the predicament where now if you lose game three, you have to go back to Milwaukee for game six. And next thing you know, this could very easily be a seven-game series. So I think it's going to be a longer series. However, I think Boston, through the first two games, has demonstrated that they are still the better team. It's just a closer gap than we originally thought. So Milwaukee's half-court offense was a little bit better in game two. They were at 0.76 points per play in game one. They were at 0.91 points per play in game two, which is a decent number. The problem is, is Boston's offense also got better in the half court from game one to game two, as you saw. And yes, there were some shooting results, like specifically in uh, contested shots. They made five tightly guarded threes out of seven tries. But the thing is, is like 
if you're a Milwaukee fan, you can't take that to the bank because you were down 65 to 40 at halftime. So like, okay, let's pretend they Jalen Brown misses a couple of those threes that he made in the first half and like, you know, a couple plays go your way. Okay, so now you're down 57 to 40. Like, it just doesn't make that much of a difference. Like, you got your ass kicked. You don't get to point at shooting when you get your ass kicked. Okay, like, yes, you made a little run in the second half, but I thought Boston was just trying to get out of that arena. You know, like, I think they would have held up better physically if the game was in question in a way that it wasn't. Overall... Mm -hmm. In this series so far, Boston is averaging about seven more points per 100 half-court possessions. That's something you can flat-out take to the bank. Obviously, the, my biggest concern and the reason why Boston will probably lose another game at some point in the series, at least one more game, is they go through stretches where they lose their offensive identity. They go through stretches where they forget what has worked for them. This is the advantage of, the, again, those top four guys I was talking about, the Chris Pauls, the Lucas, the LeBrons, and the CP3s, or the, the, the Jokic's. They never lose their offensive identity. They're relentless with being smart. You know, that's their advantage. They're chess masters. Well, pretty much everybody else in the league goes through like waxing and waning with their decision making. Well, you know, Tatum in particular, and especially Jalen Brown can both do that where they just go through these phases where they start taking bad shots. There were some spots in the second half where uh, Jason Tatum was over dribbling a little bit. Like there's times where they lose their offensive identity. So they will have stretches where they go very cold. And when they do, Milwaukee will beat them because they're the defending champs and they're a very good team. But like right now, mm -hmm. it's 1-1. They're going to the biggest challenge is they're going to have to win a game in Milwaukee. My guess is it'll probably be game 4. But the advantage for Boston and the reason why I wouldn't count them out for game 3 is physical wear and tear is one of the biggest impacts in this series. It will heavily favor Milwaukee as things progress, but Boston has three days off between game two and game three. They don't play till Saturday. So what a great opportunity to go into Milwaukee with fresh legs, get, getting Marcus Smart back, and steal back home court advantage. That's a great opportunity for them. So game three will be an interesting game to watch. But yeah, like I, I mean, it's a lot closer than, I, than it looked. Um, Milwaukee fans should, if you're a Milwaukee fan, you should absolutely think that you have a chance to win the series because you absolutely do. Giannis is far and away the best player on in the series, far and away the best player in this entire playoff run. He absolutely deserves to, to have that, that level of confidence. You know what I mean? But Boston's a better team. They've demonstrated that they're scoring better in the half court. As long as they can keep the game in the half court three more times this series, they should win. And, and obviously there are weapons too, like Grant Williams and Al Horford are guarding Giannis in single coverage well. There, there are a lot of things that are going Boston's way, but there were some things that went Milwaukee's way in that second half. It's just a question of whether or not that stuff was real or whether it was related to Boston letting their foot off the gas. You mentioned the impressive job that the Celtics have done on Giannis with kind of their multiple options there, and he's shooting sub 40% in the series so far, really struggling to score efficiently. How confident are you in Boston's ability to sustain that level? And do you feel like they've kind of solved Giannis in this series? No one's going to solve Giannis. Um, the truth of the matter is, is like, yeah, I thought that Milwaukee, I thought that Boston did a good job of making Giannis settle early on. Like, Grant Williams and Al Horford both basically tried to stonewall Giannis on his on his drop steps, basically when he'd get him in the post and try to back them down or when he would try to get ahead of steam and go. But I thought Giannis was too quick to give up on that. And especially in the first half, he was settling for a lot of jump shots and turnarounds and things like that in the post, threes, stuff like that. 
Giannis has a cumulative a cumulative wear and tear effect. So the truth of the matter is, is no matter what, no matter what Boston does, even if they do everything perfectly, if Giannis keeps dropping his head and trying to run people over, eventually he's going to break through that wall. He just is. So I don't think that it's possible to solve Giannis. But again, I think that Boston's the best defensive team of this era. I think that they're uniquely equipped to have bodies that can throw a single coverage at him. I thought one of Boston's big defensive mistakes in game one, or game two was when when they would get Giannis switched onto someone else, whether that was Rob Williams or Jalen Brown. Those were the two matchups that Giannis was attacking the most off of the other two guys. In those situations, Boston was too quick to leave him in single coverage. I'd have a really sa- simple rule. He's on Grant, single coverage. He's on Al. Single coverage. Anybody else, doubling the shit out of him right away, get it out of his hands. That's mm-hmm. got to be the strategy. But And I think you'll see that as the series progresses. But overall, he's an unsolvable player, but Boston's going to do as good of a job on him as anybody else will be able to. Yeah, I mean, it feels like we've seen that. But like you said, you can't really solve a guy who's 6'11", 240, and an absolute freak athlete in every way. But, I mean, they are doing as good of a job as anybody could. Yeah, you know, you know what's ironic is I would argue that the best defensive player in the world to put on Giannis would be LeBron because he has like the perfect combination of sturdiness and lateral quickness and just savvy and understanding of how to position himself between Giannis and LeBron and or between Giannis and the rim. And uh, I mean, obviously, we got to go back to 2020 for this, which is uh, at this point two years ago, but. That performance that LeBron put on him in Staples Center right before the right before COVID shut the league down was like mm-hmm. one of the best defensive performances I've seen on Giannis. Just just consistently like and LeBron's really good with his hands too at like reaching without fouling and stuff like that. Like mm-hmm. that's the irony is he's the best player in the league to have that type of matchup. But that's 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 LeBron. He's the second best player of all time. All right, guys, that better is than, all we have for tonight. What go ahead. I was just gonna ask better right, guys, than that is, Pete Kawhi, you think? <laughs> um Here's the thing with Kawhi. Uh, Kawhi did a good job on Giannis in 2019, but that was a long time ago. And Giannis wasn't the same level of perimeter initiator that he is now. The other thing, too, is like he just doesn't have that same level of sturdiness as LeBron. LeBron's like a fridge. You're just not moving him off of his spot. All right, guys, that is all we have for tonight. I sincerely appreciate your support. There are no games tomorrow, so I am taking a day off. We are also going to take Friday off. We will be back Saturday night for Game 3 of Warriors-Grizzlies and of Bucks celtics A couple of really, really important, really, really exciting games. New change of scenery, too, going to Golden State and going to Milwaukee. Should be a fun one. I will see you guys then. Don't forget to subscribe to the newsletter, to follow the Volumes YouTube channel, and to follow me on Twitter at underscore JasonLT to see all of my video content. I appreciate your guys' support from the bottom of my heart, and I'll see you guys in a couple of days. volume Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere like at your pregame barbecue while you prep your meats that grease trap you forgot to empty is prepping to smoke your porch garage and the car inside and without the right home and auto insurance coverage the cost to repair this could eat up your savings so bundle home and auto with Allstate to save and get protected from mayhem like this Bundled savings variant are not available in every state. Coverage is subject to policy terms and conditions. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yeah, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 